It's been around for almost 400 years. And during that time, Harvard University has helped produce eight American presidents, 24 additional heads of state from around the world, and 48 Nobel laureates. But despite the success, name recognition, and influence, most people know very little about the inner workings of our nation's oldest university, at least until now. For better or for worse, the president of Harvard is essentially given a bully pulpit. He's only held the position for a little more than a year, but Harvard president Larry Bacow's voice is already being heard as he speaks out on everything from U.S. immigration policy to climate change and more. And today, he's speaking with us. I'm David Abair, and on this episode of Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, a conversation in Cambridge and a closer look at how decisions are made inside one of the world's most influential universities. So with that as the backdrop, here's Laura Arnold and our latest episode of Deep Dive. Well, I am thrilled to be here today with Larry Bacow, the president of Harvard. Harvard, of course, needs no introduction, but for me, it's uh, especially meaningful to be here with you because I am a Harvard alum and I am particularly interested in seeing Harvard's leadership. So, Larry, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you very much, Laura. I would love to start with your personal story because... You have a background that is quite different from your, at least the the last two presidents of Harvard or the last couple of presidents of Harvard. Can you talk to us about where you came from? Sure. So I grew up in Pontiac, Michigan. Both of my parents were immigrants. They were actually refugees to this country. My father came here before World War II uh, as a child to escape the pogroms of Eastern Europe. My mother was a survivor of Auschwitz. Uh, she came here on the second Liberty ship that brought refugees from Europe uh, after World War II. Uh, sadly, she was the only member of her family who survived the war, uh, the only Jew from her town who survived the war. I had a comfortable, you know, middle-class existence or lifestyle growing up in Pontiac. It was a factory town. Uh, my father was a small-town lawyer. Interestingly, I never met anybody with a PhD until I went to college. So um, a little bit different than certainly Larry Summers' experience. So, Larry, what, how do you think that background has influenced you as a leader? I think most of us, if we're lucky, never forget where we came from. I feel like I was exceedingly fortunate that I've been privileged to live the American dream. Uh, I went to MIT as an undergraduate. I was the first kid from my high school ever to go uh, to go there. And, you know, my life was profoundly shaped by that experience. And from MIT, I made it here to Harvard. And, you know, I, I've spent a lot of my time in higher education administration trying to make sure that future generations had the same kinds of opportunities that I enjoyed. Larry, you came to Harvard having had an illustrious career in and around Boston. You've had just about every prestigious job in academia, from faculty chair to chancellor to college president uh, of Tufts. And now you have this unparalleled platform, which is the Harvard presidency. What do you want to accomplish? So there are a number of things I want to accomplish, some things I want to accomplish for Harvard specifically, but other things which I want to accomplish for all of higher education. Uh, for better or for worse, the president of Harvard is essentially given a bully pulpit to speak on a whole set of issues that affect not just Harvard, but all 
of higher education in the country, in some cases in the world. And I'm trying to use that. I'm trying to do so judiciously, but I'm trying to be a presence in Washington, D.C., engaging with members of Congress, members of the administration, on issues that are important to all of higher education. Uh, federal research funding, both NIH, NSF, the humanities, social sciences. Access to higher education, uh, support so that talented young people can go to college regardless of the circumstances of their parents. Immigration, which is, I think, terribly important to all of us. Places like Harvard and almost every university in the country benefits from the fact that many of the best and the brightest from around the world want to come to this country to study because our colleges and universities are the envy of the rest of the, of the world. Do you feel that you can be successful at conveying some of these messages in Washington or throughout the country, as I know you, you try to do, given what I'll characterize as somewhat of a, um, of a rejection or backlash against what people perceive as elites? Well, it does present some challenges. There are some, there are some people who think that Harvard is far more concerned about making Harvard great than the world better. Um, I don't think that's true, and I try to counter that narrative, both by pointing out when I travel the good people who are doing work in their communities who are Harvard graduates uh, literally all over the country. When I go to D.C., I point out the large number of our graduates who have committed their lives to public service. Uh, we have 15 Harvard alumni who in the, are in the United States Senate alone. Uh, but I also point out that nine of them are Republicans Six of them are Democrats. Larry, let's talk about an area that is um, near and dear to your heart, both academically and as a leader, and that is um, opportunity. You've done a lot of thinking about how to expand access and opportunity in higher ed. And of course, maybe the looming obstacle is cost. Uh, we have about a trillion and a half dollars in student loans out there, uh, a record almost $90 billion in default. We spend more on college than any other, almost any other country. So just a simple question, why is college so expensive? So we know how to make higher education cheaper. It's not that hard. It's called bigger classes, less student-faculty contact, less hands-on learning, simpler facilities, simpler curriculum, less support for co-curricular activities. The problem is that's not what people want. It's not what the market wants. And actually, the institutions are responsive to the market. So that's one of the things that drives costs in higher education. A second thing that drives costs in higher education is lack of productivity growth in higher education. Uh, in any sector of the economy where productivity growth lags that for the economy writ large, you're going to see costs escalating faster than for CPI, for example. And we've had very little productivity growth in higher education. Why? Well, basically, we're teaching the same way that we always have taught. You know, uh, you put a faculty member in front of a whole bunch of students in a room. Chalk and talk. Chalk and talk, or the sage on the stage, as <laughs> I like to say. Uh, we're getting away from that now. I think technology is allowing us to reach people that we couldn't reach in the past. So I'm, I'm optimistic, but we're still in the earliest stages of that transformation. Now, you often comment on the fact that competition in higher ed actually drives costs up because yes. people want more things. They want smaller classes. They want uh, more hands-on learning. They want more things, whether it's, you know, bricks right. and mortar or more programs. In any other area, you would, you, when you compete, you, you have to consider that the consumer cares about a price and right. has a price limit. That doesn't seem to be the case in education. 
Well, I think there are a couple of reasons for it. One reason is that, and my parents are a good example of this, parents will sacrifice enormously, personally, so that their children can have a better life. And I think traditionally, parents have been willing to almost pay any price to give kids that better life, and higher education has been seen as a way, as a pathway to it. So that's one explanation. But there are other more technical explanations. In, in some ways, higher education is a, is a very good example of the problem of third-party payment. Nobody actually pays the full true cost of their own education. Even a student who comes to Harvard who's eligible for zero financial aid, their education is being subsidized greatly. Uh, you know, tuition, room and board at Harvard only covers a fraction of the true cost of educating a student here. The balance of the costs are made up by the income on our endowment, being made up by gifts for current use, other other sources which uh, provide for that. So, but is that because the costs are ballooning on on one end? So that uh, even though somebody doesn't pay the sticker price, they're still paying a proportionately larger price. And they don't have any control over the costs that are, you know, that are accelerating. Well, in some institutions, um, ours being a good example, uh, in effect, what we do is that through our generous financial aid policies, we make people less sensitive to cost differentials. It's also the case that education is a good which people have a difficult time sometimes differentiating the quality based upon the independent of the price. So the price sometimes becomes a proxy uh, for, for quality as well. Some scholars point to the fact that the biggest value of education, certainly at an elite university, is what's called the signaling effect. That really it's a, what you're buying is not so much the education, but the signal that you are a smart person, that you're a hardworking person, et cetera. Do you think there's any truth to that statement? Well, there's some truth to it, certainly. Um, but it's also the case that what you get when you come to an institution, any institution, is a bundle of things. You get the, the knowledge that you acquire during your time at the school. You benefit from what I would call the hidden curriculum, the kinds of things that one learns outside of a classroom that contributes to a view of the world, a view of oneself. One gets a signal, and one also gets a network. And all of those are valuable. Um, and some institutions do a better job of providing each one of those components. In a, a couple of years ago, in late 2017, some professors at Harvard Business School released a report called Dismissed by Degree, where they reviewed around 26 million job postings. And they found that many of the cases where a job is listed as requiring a college degree, in fact, are jobs that are currently held by someone who does not have a college degree. Mm -hmm. And the argument there is that too many employers are demanding degrees that really aren't necessary and that that is, in fact, harming opportunity. Any reactions to that argument so, or that observation? Yeah, when you talk about signaling, part of the signaling effect is that comes from the admissions process. If somebody can get through such a highly rigorous process, pretty good sense that they're smart and everything else. But also, there's another dimension of signaling which is real, and that is somebody who's capable of completing a degree at a demanding place has demonstrated a certain amount of grit and determination and a capacity to actually stick with something, which is highly valued by employers as well. So no question that there are jobs where people, at least on entry, are overqualified. But what that study failed to appreciate, I think, 
is that most of us started out in jobs that we were overqualified for in some way, but they're looking for the potential for people to advance within an organization and move beyond that. Now, on the topic of teaching students how to think and professional development, you have not historically been a huge proponent of online education, at least as a replacement or, you know, a strong complement to uh, what you do at Harvard to chalk and talk. Can you talk about why you think the jury is still out on online education? Well, so we've had uh, thousands of years, literally, I mean, since the days of when students sat at the feet of Plato uh, to perfect the sage on the stage. Uh, online education is still in its infancy. We are still trying to figure out how to use it and how to use it effectively. When you were at MIT, uh, edX launched, which was a very promising platform between MIT and Harvard. Well, actually, edX launched when I was on the Harvard Corporation. When oh, excuse I me. I was part of the decision at MIT that, that uh, brought open courseware okay. into the world, which was MIT's initial uh, foray in which it put all of its courseware available and up on the web at zero cost to anybody um, who wanted it. But the initial efforts at online education basically was filming somebody on a stage. And, you know, we've learned a lot about how students learn. One of the things which we've learned is that not everybody learns well online and that better students, people who one might think of being more towards the right tail of the distribution, tend to do better sometimes or at least are capable of being self-directed and mastering material on their own better than others. So, again, we're still coming to understand both how to design courses well, how to teach differently based upon the substance of the material. One teaches poetry online differently from physics online. We also have not yet cracked the nut of how do we teach more advanced courses well online. Some subjects require enormous, enormous investments of time and effort to master. If you think of higher level mathematics or physics. And that turns out to be very, very difficult to teach in part because it's there's so few people who are taking those courses. It's very difficult to invest the resources to create an online version of them that would teach them well long after they graduate. And this Things is, like that, which are not easily replaced online. Right. And certainly that is the case for great faculty members at both lead institutions and, um, and at, you know, at any institution. Correct. Uh, but it's also true that many, many people go to college to acquire a skill. And many people increasingly are viewing a connection between higher education and a job. Do you think that there's any promise or any space for online education in creating that bridge between high school and a job for the person who doesn't necessarily want to explore poetry or, you know, take a Shakespeare course or, or do many of the things that we historically have done in liberal arts colleges. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I how think, does online learning help? If well, there, I mean, I think there are, there are places where online learning can be enormously helpful in reskilling for all sorts of people. And we're exploring that with edX. Uh, at this point. And I think lots of institutions are experimenting with that. But it's also the case that access to the entry ports, points for online education are also not necessarily distributed equally. So many of the people who could best benefit from that 
don't have easy access to high-speed internet, you know, to the technology, which would allow them to partake of these opportunities. So what, if online education isn't at least the short-term answer to driving costs down, how do you bend the cost curve in higher ed? Well, I I do think it will be uh, certainly a good chunk of the answer um, over time. It gives us the opportunity to reach a whole set of students who never would have been able to come to institutions like ours uh, in, in the past. And we will get better at it. You know, I would say that we are maybe in the bottom of the first inning of a nine inning game, you know, in figuring out how to do online education effectively and how to integrate it into conventional education as well on our campuses. So I have, I have hopes, um, but it's going to take a while. In other ways, I think there are other things which we need to do. If competition breeds, you know, tends to drive costs up, I, I think part of the answer is to have less competition in higher education. So what I mean by that is that institutions need to be partnering with each other. We're doing some interesting experiments here at Harvard these days. Most, one of the most popular courses at Harvard is called CS50. It's the Introduction to Computing. And Yale was interested in a version, uh, in a similar kind of course. Rather than create it themselves, they're basically adopting our course. And, um, some of it is being taught digitally from Harvard to Yale students, you know, with people on the ground at Yale who are working as teaching assistants and helping to evaluate the students. So that's one small example. You floated uh, an idea that I imagine is highly controversial in academic circles, which is capping tenure appointments. So I have suggested that we rethink tenure. I believe in the principle of tenure. I think it exists for good reason, both because it preserves academic freedom and also because it's a forcing mechanism that I think forces collegial organizations to make hard upper-out decisions which they would not make if it were removed. So for years, tenure was actually for a fixed term. It was until age 65 and then extended to age 70. And then the federal government in 1994 eliminated mandatory retirement for tenured faculty. And at that point, tenure became truly a lifetime appointment. I think we'd be better off if if we were able to adopt a system in which tenure was let's say, a 30- or 35-year appointment from the day first granted anywhere. But in order to do that, we would have to be able to get together with our peer institutions and agree that's how we were going to all do it. And right now, under antitrust laws, we can't have that conversation. Now, let's talk a, a bit about Harvard specifically, Larry. Harvard plays a distinct role in academia and, frankly, in American life. And as such, you attract all of the tough conversations that are happening in higher ed. I would love if you will let me to dive into all the sort of headline tough conversations that are happening at Harvard and just get your view. So let's start with free speech. What do you think the culture of free speech is like at Harvard today? I think that uh, people like me have an obligation to make sure that our students are exposed to a variety of views. I've said many times that, as you know, Veritas is our what we stand for. And if we truly believe in truth— Truth needs to be tested. It needs to be revealed. It needs to be uncovered. It can only be done so if there is a true exchange of views. So it's why we need to make sure that our students are exposed to a range of, of views. I think we try and do that. Uh, you know, we try and make sure that we have a steady stream of visitors to this campus uh, represented from across the political spectrum. 
I also think, though, that people tend to give us too much credit when they, uh, on the influence we have on our students. They think we're brainwashing them. I sometimes hear this when I go to D.C. And as I said just this past week to a Republican United States senator that we have 15 Harvard alumni in the Senate. Nine of them are Republicans. Six of them are Democrats. So if we're brainwashing our students, we're not doing a very good job of it. Well, let's turn to an issue where you did make a decision that reflected community values. A couple of years ago, your predecessor enacted a rule at Harvard that uh, essentially prohibited membership in single-sex clubs. I'm, uh, you're shaking your head because that's not a fair characterization of, yeah, the, no, it's not. of the rule. Well, you explain it. You explain so, it. So, yeah, what, what my predecessor, Drew Faust, did is that she – actually, she made a conscious decision not to prohibit those clubs, which she could have done, but she didn't. And what she said is that these single-sex organizations – and they were social organizations that, that become major players in the social scene at Harvard in ways that they weren't in prior generations, but they are now. What she said is that, look, many of these clubs have been around for hundreds of years. I don't want them to go away. I just want them to change. I just want them to admit, you know, women as well as as men. And so she said is that students have agency. They are free to make their own decision whether or not they, they join these clubs. But if they do, there are consequences. And uh, the consequences are that they cannot hold leadership positions in certain student organizations. They can't be captain of a team and that we're, they will not be eligible to be nominated for various external scholarships or fellowships like Rhodes or Marshall. And she said students should make their own decisions. What was interesting about that is that her decision was largely supported by the student body. The pushback came from the alumni members of these clubs. So I think, you know, Drew's view, and I, I, I think she's, she was right. The world is moving in this direction, and, and all we're asking is for the clubs to admit people of both sexes. Most of them have come around. Do you this think point. this has disproportionately hurt women at Harvard, women's clubs? Who, who it, it, it has had a differential impact, I, I will admit that, because the policy had to be applied equally to men and women. And there are some sororities that did not want to go co-ed and haven't. And, but interestingly, those that did experienced a three-fold increase in interest in membership this past year from previous years. So students are voting with their feet. This last admission season, you got uh, a lot of press for a decision to rescind the acceptance of a Florida high school student who was on a, on a gap year, having discovered that he had posted some extremely offensive content on, uh, on social media. Uh, and this sparked a conversation about, I, I think everybody who read that just sort of thought, oh, gosh, you know, it, everybody said dumb things at some point in their life, in their lifetimes. This was a couple of years ago. Can you comment on how you think about your role as a, as a university that shapes leaders in the context of the reality that we live in, where every single thing that you have ever said now is documented and recorded? First of all, I can't comment on any specific admissions case, but let me speak to the general issue. When we admit students, we make judgments about not just their academic performance, but their character. We make judgments about their character based upon what we know about them going back usually through high school, through ninth grade. If a student has been disciplined, we note that. If somebody writes a letter of recommendation that says, 
this particular student in 10th grade or 11th grade did something which was racially offensive. We take that into, into consideration. In fact, we make admissions decisions specifically based on what students have done 9th, 10th, and 11th grade. That's the information that we use to make such decisions. When we admit a student, we tell them in the letter of admission that their admission is conditional. So I think the, the, the rule that we and most other institutions tend to operate under is if we had known this information at the time that we were making an admissions decision, would we have offered this individual admission to Harvard? And if the answer is no, then we reserve the right to withdraw it. That's the policy. And again, for people who think, well, it's harsh making judgments based upon what somebody did when they were a junior in high school, that is how we make admissions decisions. That's always how you've made admissions decisions. How you performed academically, Mm -hmm. your extracurricular, your co-curricular life, that's the basis on which we decide who to admit to college. One last controversy I'd love to get your thoughts on is this issue of divestment. I know this is your favorite topic. You were tasked with bringing together a community, developing shared values among all of your constituencies. You have um, gone out of your way to develop that community trust in many respects, as evidenced by many of your uh, of your decisions on speech and on inviting speakers and on engaging uh, different communities. But when it comes to divestment, you and your predecessors have been relatively clear that what happens with the endowment and the endowment's investment is somehow different from the conversation about community values at the university. What is the difference? Well, so during my time as president of Harvard, I've had students and faculty and others in my office suggesting that we divest from fossil fuels. It's the most popular one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Suggesting that we divest from what is sometimes characterized as the prison industrial complex. We can talk about what that is. And, there, and acreage in Brazil, the rainforest in Brazil, the rainforest there's any in Brazil. number. Um, there's no, no, the list goes on. The list yes. goes on. As a practical matter, it's, it's not possible to run an endowment if we try to respond to all of these things or any of them. So there's a general principle, which I think is a good one, that the endowment exists to generate support and returns to underwrite the university's core academic mission. It's, it doesn't exist as a tool to be used to achieve social ends. Now, that said, let me talk about fossil fuel divestment because I've devoted my whole academic career to studying issues of the environment. I was the Martin Professor of Environmental Studies at MIT. I was the co-founder of the Center for Environmental Initiatives at, at MIT. I chaired the Council on the Environment at MIT. I don't need to be persuaded that climate change represents one of the, if not the existential threat to society My and, and the planet as we know it. My problem with divestment is I don't think it's an effective means of bringing about change. If we want to address the challenges of climate change, uh, we don't do it by washing our hands with the problem. I'm saying we have made a moral judgment that we're not going to have anything to do with those who are producing fossil fuels. In fact, we need to work with them. We need to change them. So my response is, let's figure out how we can actually make a difference in the world as opposed to taking a purely symbolic step, which would be represented by saying, 
we're going to divest from fossil fuels. We've come to the category of the interview where I would love to float some big, bold ideas and get your reaction. So the first one actually comes from my husband, whose most popular tweet of all time was the following. Perhaps the bigger issue with Harvard admissions. In 1977, the freshman class was 1,585 with an endowment of $2 billion. In 2017, the freshman class was 1,659 with an endowment of $37 billion. In 40 years, the class size grew just 5%, while endowment grew 1,750%. Why not double the class size? So it's a good question. It's one that we've considered. If you double the class size, uh, you actually have a marginal impact on the admit rate. And what we actually have concluded is that we think that we can reach far more students by investing more in online education than we can just by building dormitories and trying to expand things. There are also some very practical problems about doubling the class size. Or you, you, one, first of all, the city of Cambridge doesn't want to see our student body grow. Second, we would have to relax the constraint that you know freshmen live in the yard. There are all sorts of things that make Harvard Harvard that would be very different if we did that. But the big issue, those, you know, we could try and work on those. But basically, we've, we've thought that we can reach orders of magnitude many orders of magnitude more people by trying to invest and perfect our online presence than by just trying to admit more students to Harvard College. And on the topic of admitting students to Harvard College, one of your enterprising associate professors of education has um, promoted the idea of having a lottery for admissions. So create a fixed set of criteria and whatever you want to call it, SATs, GPA, extracurriculars, whatever else, give some weight to things like zip code, geography, income, everything else. Once you set that bar, so many people meet that bar that you could just have a lottery. And that might address all of the issues that we often hear about in admissions, about you know inequality and about bias and everything else. Right. A couple practical problems with doing that, actually. One problem is that as long as we're going to have things like orchestras and athletic teams, you need people who play the oboe, you need people who play the viola, um, you need somebody who's going to be a punter on, on a football team. So there's specific needs like that that one wants to fill and that you might not be actually be able to do that. The second thing is that we do try to achieve some distribution of students across certain interests. You know, we would not want a student body that, by the luck of the draw and given the weight of the applicant pool, might be overly weighted to one field or another. So it could be the case, as sometimes happens, depending upon where the economy is, we're overwhelmed by an interest in students who want to study computer science. And if we were to admit randomly that year, we might have 80% of the class that wanted to study computer science. That wouldn't work for Harvard. And I know you're actively thinking about ways of uh, creating more equalized admissions processes. I know you have a, a very fulsome team that works on that day and night. Uh, I want to end with one question, Larry. What makes you hopeful? Oh, there are a lot of things that make me hopeful. Uh, you, you can't be excited. You can't be energized in working at a place like this with, and not be hopeful when you see our students who come in brimming with energy and enthusiasm and really want to change the world for the better uh, in all sorts of different dimensions. And then you can't, be hopeful, you can't help but be hopeful and when you start working with faculty and seeing how they're tackling some of the most difficult, vexing, challenging problems in the world, whether or not it is finding a solution to certain dread diseases. It's 
figuring out a way to deliver clean water to people in parts of the world where they can't afford the, the same kind of wastewater treatment plants that we have. What gives me hope is that there are people here working every single day of the week trying to address some of the toughest challenges that we face as a society. And, and they're making progress. And it's inspiring to watch it and just to be part of it. That's what makes me hopeful. Well, we have so many things in common, from areas of interest to passions ranging from the environment to criminal justice to poverty. But one thing that we especially share is the fact that we're both products of a system that worked, where we both came from public school systems. Yep. We enjoyed the benefits of an elite education, you at MIT and Harvard and I at Harvard and, uh, and Yale. And I think that it's commendable and so admirable that you've devoted your time as president to helping others pursue the American dream. So thank you so much for being on Deep Dive today. Well, thank you very much, Laura. And uh, thank you for your kind words. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, produced by the Arnold Ventures Philanthropy. If you'd like to learn more about the organization, visit arnoldventures.org. By maximizing opportunity and minimizing injustice, we make change for the greater good. Again, that website is arnoldventures.org. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you again next time on Deep Dive.